Hi, everyone, and welcome to Invested, the Rule One podcast. I'm Danielle Town. As part of our Back to Basics series, my dad and I had the great pleasure of having our first guest on our podcast, and we started off with someone we were both absolutely thrilled to talk to, Guy Spear. Guy is a value investor, a hedge fund manager, and author of a book called Education of a Value Investor. We sat down with Guy, and we had such a good time talking that our discussion went on longer than the time we had for just one episode, so we split it up into three episodes, and this is the third of the three. Enjoy. You start off, it's it's okay, we can paint panels, you start off saying, I don't know a damn thing about this. Exactly. And I'm scared stiff. Exactly. Connect to that emotion and be aware of it. And don't pretend that you do know something about it. Are you saying that you, as a professional investor, feel scared? Yes, absolutely. And I feel ignorant a lot of the time. So... I mean, thank you for saying that because a lot, a lot of us feel like that, and it's not okay to say it. Yeah, that, that's that's insane, and so uh, I say it for everyone. Yeah, uh, so because so that is a liberating emotion, because once you you know that's more than half the problem. Okay, I don't actually know what I'm doing here, mm-hmm. so and I do not want to lose these hard-earned savings, so. Um, let's start trying to find people who do appear to know what they're doing. And now we have to be discerning. So you're not listening to the guy who speaks the loudest with the biggest megaphone or who pays the big bucks to get their name and face into barons. Or you're trying to find somebody you know, who, 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 who seems to know what they're doing. And in case you haven't figured that out, let me throw some names out. <laughs> so there is a guy called Bruce Flatt at Brookfield Asset Management. Spell his last name. F-L-A-T-T. Okay. He has compounded money at very nice rates for a long time. He doesn't have an axe to grind. You pay attention to what he's got to say. Great idea. Try and understand what he's doing. Uh, um, You you know, this is Jamie Dimon. Take out his letters and start reading his letters. Mm -hmm. And obviously, I put him third in this list because I would have everybody would expect me to put him first. Warren Buffett clearly knows what he's doing. So, you know, and then if, if I put myself into the shoes of myself 20 years ago, maybe I want to buy, I don't know that Berkshire Hathaway is particularly undervalued, but maybe I want to buy some shares of Berkshire Hathaway because I kind of want to be in a relationship with Warren Buffett. So now I have one of my one of my managers is Warren Buffett, you know. So I had this great. I he loved it. So I said, you know, Warren, it's good. So he gave us a very short meeting in his office. As you know, it's 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 good that we meet Warren because you know between you and me, we control Berkshire Hathaway. We've got some important things to discuss. <laughs> but what an amazing world that you can go and buy shares in the stock market in Berkshire Hathaway. And guess what? You've got Warren Buffett working for you for $100,000 a year. Wonderful. Isn't that... So, and not every purchase that you make has to be this full-on value investing purchase. There are other reasons to buy a particular share of stock. I mean, didn't you pay actually over market price for your first uh, share of Berkshire? Not for my first company? share. Yeah, that's great. You've read my book. I have. <laughs> so at the time... And this is actually a, good, a great example of this. So I'd figured out that there was this company, Ruane Conniff in New York, that owned a lot of shares of Berkshire Hathaway 
and was also uh, a group of really smart people making some very smart investments. And I just, uh, I wanted to be a part of it in any way I could, just to touch those people, just mm. to be in the same room as them was enough. But even, so, so, so um, your audience will be saying, yeah, but I don't live in New York, I'm never gonna be in the same room as them. Even just owning the shares meant that I, we were now in a relationship. So, um, and their shares were not available to buy because the fund was closed. So I found somebody on eBay who was willing to sell me one share in Sequoia Fund at 4x the price, hmm. which kind of was, you know, I, I'm glad I wasn't in his shoes because he thought he was being smart, whatever. So I bought one share, but once I had one share, I could buy a bunch more shares and I bought a bunch more shares and I put them into my Charles Schwab account. So I still have them today. You still have them? Yeah, and, and for a period of about 10 years, I showed up at the uh, Ruane Conniff meetings and met some incredible guys there. I mean, they're just some amazing analysts. Um, so, you know, and, and that's a great idea. So so you take Ruane Conniff. Well, just, and- just to put that in context for a second, when Warren Buffett fired all of his investors in, in yeah. the late 60s and shut down the Buffett partnerships and shifted his funds over to Berkshire Hathaway, Bill Ruane was one of the options he offered to the limited yes. partners. He said, you can, you know, take your money out of Berkshire of Buffett partnerships and put it into Berkshire. Yes. Or if you want to be in a mutual fund, you can go with Bill Ruane. So which turned out to be a good a good solution. A for great a, people, a great deal. It's, it's, it's been an extraordinary investment over the years. They got into some controversy and trouble over the last eighteen months because they had a very large position in Valiant, which didn't work out for them. Mm-hmm. But last annual meeting, Warren and Charlie both said that the culture of the farm was intact. It's a wonderful place. Um, and so, you know, and by doing that, what I did was I built up, I, so because where I started from was that I didn't feel like I was a professional. Uh, and yeah, I had an MBA, but I'd never invested before. And I was in a position where I was investing family money from day one. And I didn't, I was certain so that was I didn't. So very personal to you. I was scared stiff, you know, and my father is not, he's kind of like a black or white kind of guy. So he doesn't go, look, here's, here's 5% of my net worth invest that. He's like, here's 100%, good luck. Yeah. Oh my <laughs> gosh. Yeah. Slightly scary, a bit like a bit like the story you were telling me about that the, that real estate family in in Chicago. Yeah. Where, so I was, I was really fearful and I'm a fearful kind of guy, you know. Uh, Monish, the Indian friend with whom I had lunch with Warren Buffett with, tells me that, um, he says that I, so, so he, he is very disapproving of my willingness to ride motorcycles, go backcountry skiing because he's like you're willing to risk your life yeah but you're so scared of risking money whereas Monish is the opposite <laughs> so he'll make big bold bets but he's not doing any of those he's not he's not doing backcountry skiing you know cycling only in very safe places motorcycling forget about it but um but I built up an environment so I started going to the Berkshire meetings every year I started going to the uh, Ruane Conniff meetings and then the thing is it's this and this is it's in the book and it's really an idea taken over from two people. I learned it from Tony Robbins and from Monish Pabrai. Tony Robbins calls it modeling and Monish Pabrai calls it cloning, which is literally, so uh, I haven't done it because there's not enough hours in the day, but just to take one example at random, um, Ruane Conniff in Sequoia Fund own a company called Idex Laboratories. So now, you know, the goal of my life is to try and figure out why they own IDEX Laboratories. 
mm. and see if I can figure it out. And most of the time I can't. But I would say that every now and then I think I can. And those are amazing moments when you do that. And so so in a certain way, what, what Monish would say is this is bowling with rails up. What do you call that? <laughs> yeah. You know? Because you, you're just following. And, you know, there, there, there are studies that would be done that if you just looked at what Warren Buffett owns in the Berkshire portfolio, publicly owned stock, and you bought it at the end of the quarter at the highest price that he paid during the quarter, and that's all you ever owned in your portfolio, you'd do just great. The hard thing, you do really well. The hard thing is, is that then you see that he's just put $10 billion into IBM and everybody's saying, <laughs> what? <laughs> what? Exactly. exactly, so these yeah. things are so hard to do. But in a certain way, if, if, the, if the investment has already passed muster with Warren, then you know, you're bowling with the rails up. And that, by the way, is where I feel enormous responsibility with uh, Horsehead because I feel like, you know, I just started filing these 13F filings where I have to make what I own public. And I feel like people might well have read my book, decided Guy knew a little bit about what he was talking about and followed me into Horsehead. <laughs> then it didn't work out, you know? And and so... Uh, um, and, and that's that's the that tension that's the push and the pull of following people yeah. but only to the point where you can understand it and you've found the moat for yourself right yes. and you've decided that however we get there the management is decent enough yeah and you've done the the numbers for yourself yeah i mean can i quote from your book for a second sure I just thought this was really beautiful. You say, value investors have to be able to go their own way. The entire pursuit of value investing requires you to see where the crowd is wrong so that you can profit from their misperceptions. This requires a shift towards measuring yourself by an inner scorecard. And I just thought that was so cool. Like instead of coming from the outside, instead of saying, hey, what's everybody else doing? It's almost like you're kind of using everybody else. Like, hey, what are you guys doing? Should I go the opposite way? Yeah. Let me check in with myself. Or, or at a very minimum, you have to, you have to be independent. You have to make up your own mind, and that would preclude doing it because Guy did it or because Manish yeah. did it. You, you have to use that as a, as a, as a clue. Yeah. Certainly, it's a, it's a shortcut. You've got the rails up. Yeah. But you have to understand why they're doing it. And if you don't get it, you can't do it. And by the way, I think that's where your dad has an enormous advantage over the rest of us, in case you're interested, Phil. Because, um, and I, I haven't done the full bio. We, your dad and I haven't done the full lifeline. But, um, you know, I, I so, so it's so great. And I was, I was, for the listeners, I was doing this with, with Phil and Danielle before we started doing this. You are the yin, the yin and the yang. So, so I actually feel I have a lot more in common with what I know of Danielle, which isn't all that much, uh, because we have this kind of academic thing going where we've been through some strenuous academic environments, which is so devastating to an inner scorecard. I've, I've been through Bellevue Community College, so I don't know what you guys are <laughs> but going I don't on even, about. I don't even know where you studied, Phil, but what I know is that you were willing very As far early, as I can tell, no one thought I studied at all. But, but you were very willing to zig when others zagged, mm. and you were not fearful of you know, going off the beaten path. True. 
and uh, and that's that key idea of stepping away from the crowd, mm. and that you know that's so I think that you have innate uh, a personality attributes that make make you a natural at being contrarian, whereas for me it's like I'm I'm sweating bricks when <laughs> when I make probably the kinds of moves that you would make naturally, and I don't know because Daniel I know that there are a lot of things that are contrarian in you and the way you've lived your life, but. Um, and I, what I would say is that it's so easy to write that stuff, but a lot of it, if you do it, is so innate to yourself and how you've lived your life and what you've and done. And it's so delicate, it's hard to describe. It's very difficult to tell somebody else how to do it. You that- can't, yeah. But then, you know, I, I would just go to, back to some very, very basic things. If you're, if you're an investor starting off, so... We talked about bowling with bumpers. Go and find some experts. Be careful. Don't let somebody tell you who the experts are. Go to a, you know, a quiet place and say, who do I really believe knows what they're doing here? But then for me, there, there, there are a couple of other things. Like My goal is to remain fully invested pretty much the whole time. Uh, why? Because the trend of the market is up. And you know I, I don't want to be caught with uh, a lot of cash when the market makes its moves. And we know that the market makes its moves on a very, very small number of days. It's very, very hard to predict. Mm-hmm. So, so when you say fully invested, that means that most of your fund is invested in the market. I, th- I would be very uncomfortable if I was if I was more than 40% cash, let's say, okay. at any time. Okay. At any time. And, and the, by, by the same token, I'd be very uncomfortable if I was even 1% more more than cat um, more than a hundred percent invested so if i was levered even one percent of the value of the portfolio so you know somewhere between 40 percent and zero cash at all times and so with the one if you're starting off so when i started doing this i took over a portfolio of laddered bonds so bonds that were set to um to come to the end and redeem for cash sort of over a five-year period and the academic research shows that you're better off just investing it all at once, but psychologically that would have been hard for me to do. So every year I, I went from 20% to 40% to 60%, it took me five years to get fully invested. And, and um, so somebody starting afresh with a whole bunch of cash, you would certainly do that. Uh, and how, how many stocks did you end up with at, at five years, roughly? So, so here's something talking about forgiveness. So Mark Chapman, you met, it sort of annoys him when he looks at my portfolio. So there are always the things that I started buying and then decided for one reason or another that I didn't want to continue buying them. So, uh, um, you know, so there's some things that are like sort of 0.1 of a percent and there's $10,000 of this. And, you know, so, so there's 25 positions in the portfolio. And the other side is, there are the positions that went up three times, you know, and it's like now they've ballooned to a large size. And I just live with that. And I and I look at Warren and Charlie's portfolios and they have the same thing. I mean, if you, by the way, another company really worth looking at, two companies, because, because of the people running them. So Charlie Munger is the chairman of a publicly traded company uh, called Daily Journal Corporation. And, you know, when you buy Daily Journal Corporation, about 50% of that is in the one stock that the company owns, uh, Wells Fargo. So, uh, but that, that, you know, you might decide to buy some of those shares, just to have Charlie Munger in your life. And then you can go to his annual meeting, which happens in Pasadena every year. Uh, and another company... Do you, have, do you have a symbol on that one? 
Pardon? Uh, DJCO. DJCO. It's it's a micro cap. It's a, it's like sort of a hundred million dollar market cap. And just to be clear, they have a business that's in decline. They're in the newspaper business. They're in the business of court reporting. Mm-hmm. So they have these court reporting newspapers where you have to publish an official notice of something. Um, uh, so uh, Daily Journal, you get into kind of a relationship with Charlie Munger great and, and great letters to read. And then another company that's really interesting to, to, to get involved with is Graham Holdings. So Graham Holdings is the fa- company of the, of, the, of the Graham family who used to own the Washington Post. Hmm. But they sold the Washington Post out to uh, Jeff Bezos. Mm-hmm. And they uh, then spun another business out. They spun their cable business out. But they have a hodgepodge of businesses in there. But the guy running it is an amazing guy. And so you don't just have to go with... And they're relatively... I mean, it's like, if I'm not mistaken, it's like a half a billion to a billion dollar market cap, something like that, I think. Um, so these are these are kind of like... So navigating at night, uh, you know, these are some of the North Star, there's the Big Dipper, there's, you know, some of these things. Just one other company while we're at it, I would say you you mentioned Phil. You mentioned uh, Prem Watsa. Yep. I find Prem Watsa very hard to follow. Uh, in that, I have no clue what he did with BlackBerry. He might make an enormous amount of money out of it. And this giant forest that he owns. You know, <laughs> paper I, products company. What is it? R R something. I don't know. It just. I don't it's know. It's beyond me. Yeah. But but a company that's really and I've never attended their annual meetings. But uh, is Markel Insurance based out of Richmond, Virginia. Tom Gaynor, a fantastic investor. And you know, these, the shares are available for anyone to buy and the annual meeting is, I've attended their gathering in Omaha. It's a wonderful gathering of people. I mean, you just cannot. Do they overlap with Warren's meeting or no? Different so what time? they did was they decided <clears throat> that the Berkshire Hathaway weekend was just too good an opportunity to pass up. So they started doing the Markel brunch on the Sunday mornings at the uh-huh. Berkshire meeting. And at first, only shareholders showed up. And then it kind of, it just became part of the circuit. So, you know, um, if I, if I, if Phil, you and I were to go to the Markel branch, we would, we, uh, we, you would run into people that you know, because a whole group of people who are at the Berkshire meeting will show up to the Markel branch. And you get to hang out with Tom Gaynor and ask him questions about why he owns what he owns. And, I want to, uh, you know, I I want to go to the to Omaha with you this next year. Let's do it, man. It just came on too short a notice last year. I just yeah, didn't get it together. Yeah, it's and and I would tell, uh, you know, the, the podcast listeners. I would I would tell you that people drive in, so people drive in from Iowa, Kansas, mm-hmm. Missouri. You know, and this is not high finance. This is normal people, and uh, it's really a wonderful, wonderful weekend and. What happens is, so what I decided, if I, so, so, so I'm trying to redeem myself from that point where you guys said, well, this is not what we're teaching on this podcast. <laughs> hey, you're allowed to disagree with you us, are, by the way. It's that sort Our of Our central place. tenet is say what you think. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. But, but I, I, I would have given a, I do believe that what you're teaching is the right thing. And I don't, and I don't think it's a world in which I, experts win more or only experts can win i think people who do this for themselves are doing the right thing and i do believe that so so when i'm sort of saying oh this is very specialized you've got to study it for 10 years and then maybe you're qualified to do it but i think so put it this way 
you need the intent to do well at it because so there's intent is everything if you if you practice the piano with the intent to improve you'll improve if you practice the piano with just like well i'll do this because my mom's telling me to do it you won't improve so you have to go about investing with the intent to improve and with the realization that so i remember 20 years ago people like you're going to the Berkshire meeting haven't you already done that you know it's like no because this one idea and and think upon it and do it again and again and and so no, I'm going to go to the Berkshire Hathaway meeting every year of my life. Actually, I have to confess I missed it once and I deeply regret it. But, um, and there's a layering that happens, there's a buildup that happens, relationships that get renewed. And then I, I wake up and realize that I'm not, I'm suddenly in a different world to the average investor because of all of these things that I've done. And so and again, to your point, which I think is, you know so Phil I don't know if you feel this way but everything I've learned about business I realized Warren Buffett already knew it there's nothing that I've learned that when I learn it I'm like oh yeah he knew that as well you know I'm, yeah exactly maybe one day I'll learn something that, that I can say yeah and he definitely didn't know that but I haven't gotten there yet <laughs> and th- this idea that and he really means it that um, there's nothing that he's doing that's extraordinary uh, it's they're all you know he, he they didn't do well by finding seven foot bars to jump over they did well by finding one foot bars to jump over and so it's these simple things like um, don't think that the decision to t- to attend the Berkshire Hathaway meeting is insignificant if you do it once and never again without intent and never do anything else yeah it probably will be insignificant but if you attend the simple decision to attend the Berkshire meeting and to go and buy some shares of uh of a Sequoia fund run by Ruane Kaif and, and to, to, to go to Richmond and attend the Markel meeting and maybe send a thank you note to, to, to um, uh, his name's just uh, Tom Gaynor for, for whatever words he said. That already, you know, so, but it's, it's, so there's a beautiful phrase that comes, believe it or not, from the Talmud that, you know, mountain ranges held up by threats. You know, it's like it's like lots and lots and lots of small things. That well, and that's exactly what I've been finding with my own investing practice and looking at it as a practice, not as a project that's going to end, but as something that you just build on every yes. day or every week or every month or every year. And only through the building do you find those little those little changes, those little yeah. moments of oh, I wouldn't have seen that five years ago, but now I have. Yes. And I've seen that. I've been doing this a year, a a little over a year, and I've seen that happen for me. Yeah. And it's heartening to hear that people who have... At the screaming pace of an hour a week. (laughs) (laughs) Well, occasionally more than that, Dad. (laughs) And and so there's something else that's... that's, um, I think that most people just give up because they feel like they're not making progress. And you know, the, the, and I, I felt I, that as well, by the way. So the power of, you know, the, the, the incredible thing about compounding is that you never feel like you're making progress. You know, and I stop and I think of every, apart from like, you know, I go through a six month period where the portfolio is up 30% and I feel great. Okay, that, that definitely has happened and may, many more periods like that happen again. But I think that the vast majority of the time that I've spent investing, you know, I look at the portfolio and I'm like, nothing's going on. <laughs> Nothing's going on. It's like, this sucks. You know, 
And that is the majority of my time. And um, you've got you to trust that this will lead to great results. That's that inner scorecard. And, and trust the process and just be willing to go with the program for mm-hmm. two, three, four years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I still now, I, you know, I stop and I say, I wind back 10 years. So if I wind back 10 years, we're now 2016. 2006, I was, I was running, I don't know, $70 million. So I've been through some major ups and downs, but I'm now running more than double that, you know? So, so um, there's progress, but every time subjectively, you know, what did I say earlier on? I said, oh, I've just been through two rough years. You know, that's what I'm... And then I step back and I say, oh, actually, it's been quite a, quite a journey. And I think that many people just give up because they just don't believe it. And you know, in in this is this is this probably needs to be wiped out. But it's like, I'm grateful for the people who give up, because the people who give up make it easy for those of us who stay. In a certain way, somebody said the stock market is just a mechanism whereby money is transferred from the impatient to the patient. Oh you wow, know? that's a great <laughs> quote. I love that. Yeah, I so, love uh, that. Um, yeah, there's there's some there's some phenomenal basics in there that. I know that Munger kicks around all the time and is just the ability to wait where we were talking about earlier. Yeah. And I just wonder, do you think that a, a small investor who's learning to go through this process and is being patient um, could rely on, on this old quote from Ben Graham where he says, essentially, um, you buy a wonderful business. Um, I'm, I'm getting the quote wrong, but basically that you're going to buy a wonderful business when the market fluctu- the natural market fluctuations put it on sale. Yeah. And do you, I mean, are we going to have natural market fluctuations ever again? I mean, we had this huge big downturn in 2009 then the Greek thing in 2011, but we keep, you know, the market just keeps getting pushed forward. And, and you wonder, is it going to go on sale? And, and could people rely on studying for a couple of years and making a watch list of some companies they'd like to buy and rely on the market fluctuating and putting those on sale or is that is that changed forever no no i i think that's built into human nature it's built into i think you know i just remember just before the 1930 crash there's some famous newspaper article that said stocks seem to no it was before the in the 70s stocks seem to have reached a permanently high plateau mm. you know and it's when that happens, and when even the newspapers are talking about stocks being at a permanently high plateau, is when something's about to happen. And um, so, no, I, I, I'm, I think that it's so easy to say that, Phil, but you still end up believing it. And and so you know, um, uh, but in intellectually, I can be quite certain in saying that we will continue to have major fluctuations. Sometime in the next fifty years, will be another financial crisis. I'm quite certain of it. Um, but I don't think if I was going into the market, if I was deciding to start investing now, I wouldn't be waiting for some major crash. I'd, I'd, I'd want to get 50% invested pretty quickly. And then I'd take a little more time with the next 50%. Why would you want to get invested in 50%? Because I don't know whether that opportunity to buy is happening in the next three months. And if I knew it was going to happen in the next three months, I'd definitely want to wait. But it might take 10 years. And we don't know the path of the market, and we know that being invested is better than not being invested. So I just want to get to that state of mind. But only in companies that are valued at a, or are priced at lower than their value, right? Yeah, I, the only thing, you know... And they're so, just hard to find. 
they're hard to find and you know so think of it not as buying a company think of it buying a path for intrinsic value and so there are companies whose path on intrinsic value is very flat and there are other companies whose path to intrinsic value is a rocket ship and so um I've realized that if I own a company that I think is on an upward path of intrinsic value, I'm willing to to own it or even buy it at above today's intrinsic value because I want to get onto that upward path. Hmm. And I don't start worrying about whether it'll drop to a buy price tomorrow or in five years. So so I you know, this is this idea of paying up for a good business. When we say pay up for a good business, what we're really talking about is paying up for an upward path of intrinsic value. What does path to intrinsic value mean? Well, so so if we imagine, imagine a really horrible business that um, at best uh, um, sort of has the same earnings every year and maybe declining. So we, we take a, I don't know, Safeway, you know, and they earn 2% margins and their lunch is being eaten potentially by Amazon and Walmart and various other more um, competitive food retailers, but they're eking out some margins every year and I've bought them. Let's say I even bought them at a very low price, 50% of intrinsic value. I bought them at five times earnings and I figured out they're worth 10 times earnings. So if earnings aren't growing, at some point they'll be worth 10 times earnings. Hallelujah. That's not a great business, but I bought it at a discount. Now we take a business, one that I never invested in, maybe I should have, I don't know, and maybe I have. there would be a better example, but um, Amazon, where uh, the um, making no money, but they're making no money because they keep their prices incredibly low and they're reinvesting enormous amounts in cloud computing that is, now we know, a few years afterwards, that there's an enormous return to investing in cloud computing so would I be willing to pay more than five times earnings for that? Certainly. Maybe we would be willing to say that after we make some adjustments that it's worth 20 times earnings or a 5% um, earnings yield. And some people that I spoke to were willing to pay double that because they said this, this thing is worth a billion dollars today, but next year it'll be worth two and a half billion dollars. And a year after that, it's going to be worth five billion, and and in a decade, it's going to be worth eighty billion. And so I know that I'm overpaying today, but I'm willing to do it. So I've taken two extreme cases, and you know, and when you buy into Safeway, you're getting into a whole relationship with a management team in a business that's just not going anywhere. Uh, and so you know, pay two times, pay two times earnings. I mean, there you might get something, you might get a pop, uh, but th- that just means that you may be willing to, and this is this idea that growth and value are joined at the hip, and you may be willing to pay up. And I, and, and so if you, if I had some uh, family member who said, Guy, uh, the only companies I'm willing to buy, even though you think they're insanely overvalued are Google, Apple, Microsoft, whatever. You know, on some part, on some level, I'd say, yeah, go for it, because it's better for you to be in the market than not to be in the market. You know? How does that um, correlate with what Charlie says about having a margin of safety on the price? Um, there certainly should, well, so, so I'm coming from a more basic thing, which is 
are you invested in inequities at all? Mm. And if you're just overcoming that hurdle of whether you should be invested in equities, on some level, you know, I just think it's better to be in them or not, it, to be in them rather than not in them. Once you're in them and you want to get better at it, then you certainly want to buy companies with the margin of safety. But I guess I'm coming, so, so it doesn't square with it. But for the guy who's not invested in equities, it's, I think just to be there is a good place to start. And maybe another way of saying that is that the S&P is a very, very bad index because it overweights the overvalued companies. It's a market cap weighted index, which means that when a company has a large market cap because its price is inflated, it becomes a larger part of the index and people are forced to buy more of it. Uh, but even buying the S&P index exposes you to equities and is better than not owning equities. If you're going to, going to own an index, there are better indexes to own. So you could go and find an equal cap weighted S&P index that they're now exchange traded funds that do that, that would be better for you. But I'm just saying even the worst option on equities is probably a lot better because in equities, it's the only instrument that gives you unlimited upside. No other financial instrument not a, not no commodities, bonds. None of those give you unlimited upside. So that's the first place to be, you know. Just be in the damn thing. <laughs> what do you think about that, Mister Sit in Cash? <laughs> yeah, sorry, that, Phil. <laughs> well, I think that the discipline is what Charlie teaches, and that's the discipline. But I think that guy's making a tremendous point, and I think you made that point for him in this first stock that you bought because just simply overcoming the fear of getting involved in investing at all yeah. is a big, big step. Were you talking about it, Guy, from an emotional place or from a, I think equities are just a good investment in general as far as the vehicle of investment and people should be in it They're, or both? Yeah. Well, uh, unless you need the money sometime in the next three or four years, then I think I'm very confident in saying that equities are the right place to be. Um, uh, but I, I, I guess I'm also, you know, why start talking about moats and intrinsic value and margin of safety if you're trying to get over the fear of just owning equities whose price can fluctuate? So your dad said you're making my point because you don't actually know that I did this because okay. I was really nervous about buying some shares and... I said to dad, you know what? I'm just gonna do it. I'm just gonna take a small amount of money, for me, a small amount of money, and essentially kiss that money goodbye. Assume I'm never gonna make it back. I'll probably never yeah. sell the shares. It's gone. Yeah. It's like buying an experience. And for me, buying an experience was worth about 300 bucks. <laughs> so I spent 300 bucks and I bought Whole Foods. And I was terrified. And dad told me I was an idiot. And I was wasting the money. And I was doing everything against everything he had taught me. <laughs> I told the whole class this. I said, Danielle bought her first time. No, you told me this on the phone, and she I think. didn't do one minute research. You were actually None. insulted that I was going None. to do this. I, you, you had this moment of, like, horror. A and year said, and a half of... Of this I said, I don't care. No, it was shorter than that. But I said, I don't care. I have decided that I have to do this. And he, because here's the thing. He's never experienced this. 
And I said to you, you've never experienced this. And you said, no, I've never. I don't even know what you're talking about. And there's So this, I went for it and it was awesome. And I would recommend it to anybody. And there's this idea that investing is a very personal journey. Mm-hmm. And you cannot step into somebody else's shoes. You have to stay in your own shoes. And I also think that that moment makes me think of, and I'm pretty sure, Phil, you've done this kind of thing, probably both of you having lived in Wyoming, but not far away from here, there's a, an indoor climbing center. But, uh, you know, so there's a high line where you step over uh, a sort of the safe place and you're strapped in, but suddenly there's like 100 feet below. Mm. There's that transition from being on terra firma to being out there. Mm-hmm. Or you know there's that feeling when, you, when you're when you gonna be laid down a cliff, mm. you're on terra firma, but there's the point where you have to lean back and trust the rope. Mm-hmm. That I, is a great yeah, analogy. I hate that feeling. I just hate it. Some people love it. <laughs> I hate it every time. You know, and they're like, oh, just do it once and then you love it. No, I hate it every time. And I can do it. I can make myself do it, but I hate it. And yeah, so just step out there. And, and you know, and there's nothing like you don't know. You don't know a stock until you own it. <laughs> there it is. That's a great. There it is. That's a great yeah. concept. I hadn't thought of. Which is a little bit. I, I do the same thing you do. I end up with a little bit of money in a lot of things. But the vast majority of the portfolio is very narrow, actually. Uh, maybe six or seven or ten. Yeah. But then there's all this other stuff that I started yeah. into. And then I thought, yeah. oh, I, I better. I better dig in here. Yeah. yeah, I may not really know what I thought I knew. Yeah, it's funny how a little money in the game changes, changes everything. everything. Yeah. And so I have some prospective investors asking me this question: What about all these small positions? What do they mean? You know, like what are you doing here? I'm like, and what I want to say is, don't worry about it. It's so so. Monish has this great um, line that he said in his, his annual meetings, which is that in, investing is like making sausages. It's a really messy business, <laughs> but the t- the outcome can taste pretty good. But it's messy. It is messy. Be prepared for the messiness. Yeah. And, and so uh, and so, really, all the way back to where we started with Charlie, he's taken the sausage making process, and he's streamlined it into these very simple four things. Yeah. That we have, as I've said, we've been working on for a year and a half. That Charlie says, what would they do the rest of the semester? And I think it's got to be a little bit of monger humor to well, start with I, I think that something very important for us to remember is that these guys get asked this question 20 times a day and when you get asked the question 20 times a day you also develop so it's rude to sort of say go away I'm not interested or you idiot or the Mozart answer um, and so you come up with these answers that you know he's kind of that answer is a compromise between um, here's some a little bit of wisdom that is certainly useful to you which doesn't draw me into a long conversation because I really don't want to get into it with you. <laughs> and we need to see it as that. Well and so, you know, and, and in a certain way, it is that simple. But in a certain way, um, there's an enormous amount of experience that comes out of that, uh, that, that, that underlies that, I guess. Uh, but the key, you know, if I go back to, to me, yeah, those four principles in um, self-forgiveness and intent. This is not draw by numbers where it doesn't matter what your intent is, you're still going to end up with the picture that the draw by numbers gave you. You have to have the intent of making something out of it. And the intent is everything and self-forgiveness where you fall short. Guy, 
thank yeah. you for sharing thank you. your experience that was, that was fantastic <laughs> thank you very very much and uh with that i think it's time I, to go play I, it would be remiss for me i sorry because you almost ended there so actually it's a nice way to end is that your intent in doing this podcast is teaching both of you about charlie munger's principles and that is a beautiful thing because you're actually commit you're, you're doing it for yourselves as much as you're doing it for the listeners. So true, and, my and, friend. Oh, I'm doing it entirely for myself. <laughs> That's so true. I have, you know, when we do this workshop once a month, we have usually 30 students come and teach yeah. at the workshop when we break into small groups. And they do it because of exactly that guy. Yeah. The teaching process is the learning process. And, and you're making the world a better place by doing this podcast. So thank, thank you. you. Yeah. Thank you. And thanks, thanks for, again. Thanks for inviting me on your show. It's really <laughs> lovely. Terrific time. <laughs> thanks, everybody. Thanks, if everybody. If you have questions, as usual, go to questions or email us. Go to investedpodcast.com and email us at questions at investedpodcast.com. Thanks. Time to go play. Bye. Yeah. See ya. Bye. Thanks, everybody, for listening to our interview with Guy Spear. Next week, we'll be continuing back to basics, and we'll get to talk about what we each thought of Guy's comments. We're going to move on to management, which Guy had a couple things to say about, and I suspect my dad will have a few thoughts on what Guy said to do in the market. So until then, thanks, everybody, and talk to you then. Hey, thanks for listening to Invested, the Rule One podcast. If you like this episode, you can always get our show notes and more details and links to the resources we discussed at investedpodcast.com. Also, as long as you're online, head on over to investedpodcast.com slash workshop for details on an upcoming three-day live workshop that I'm hosting. All you gotta do to go is enter the special podcast code STOCKPILE, that's S-T-O-C-K-P-I-L-E, STOCKPILE, into the application form, and you guys can attend for free. So everything discussed on this show is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion. And it is not to be taken as investment advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I really do hope you've enjoyed it. So until next week, it's time to go play. See ya.